Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Lost Art Podcast. The Lost Art Podcast, not just Lost Art Podcast. I'm Paul and I'm here with Gar. That is me. I am here. Nit, 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 nit. Today's episode, we will be talking about epics, big, mm. huge songs. Um, a lot of ones I picked, anyway, have big orchestral parts. Some don't. Um, mm. Or else they can be epic in another way. But you know the songs we're talking about. They're not, they don't just sit with the other songs in the album. They're, yeah, the one of a kind. Like like I said, the, the orchestra stuff is almost like it's a, it's a in some ways you hear some songs that use orchestra stuff and stringed instruments and stuff like that as like a cheap route to it. But when it's epic, done properly, status, yeah, 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 when it's done properly, like it doesn't need the cheap fucking heat. Like it's it just yeah, works. You don't have to use orchestra. And some of the ones here, it's just mm. vocal harmonies mixed with an extra guitar. It can actually just add or the drums kick Big in time. harder. Yeah, uh, I find that all of the songs have a sort of crescendo that that helps yes. the epic nature mm. of them, or a big build up, or just yeah. So listen, yeah, I think that's all I have to say. You know what we're talking about. I don't yeah, need to like explain that anymore. Big fucking songs, big giant epic songs. Like listen, you know when we start talking about. You'll know by the first four or five songs what we're talking about here. And oh, uh, yeah. we're, we're going to play some samples for you as well, so everybody will get an idea. Some of them are a little bit long as well, actually. Yeah, some of the, these, these the chunks. Build-ups. Yeah. The build-ups. If we just cut, cut straight into the epic people, like, yeah, it sounds like a, a big, important, like a busy song. No, no, it's the build-up. So. Exactly. Build-up. They're so, missing um, that, that, uh, that, that crescendo, that build-up, then it's just so another, uh, another bit. Yeah. Yeah, it can be another bit. It can happen a few times in the same song as well. Yeah. But uh, who's your first epic? My first one is a pretty obvious one, but I had to get in there. I had to get in off the boat uh, real quick with it. And it's uh, it's Africa by Toto. Had to do it. Pretty epic towards the yeah, end, especially. Yeah, exactly. Starts big, finishes bigger. Yeah, just by the time it gets around to the end of it, um, it's just, it's, it's just, uh, just so much fucking happening. Um, what I like about it is that there's... It's such a weird format of a song. Like, it's just this little kind of synthesizer. And that's it. And they just build this entire song around this. And it's fucking mad. Like, there's not that much else going on. There's a bit of bass plonking away. The drums are plonking away. And then it all just kind of builds towards the end. Now, I'm going to play a bit of it. I'm going to play a bit of it now. And I'm not actually going to play a bit from the end of it. I'm going to play a bit just as it's starting to kind of get the ball rolling. Just so yeah. uh, everybody knows the song, but just in case, and then we'll come back. We'll so talk look, a little bit I about it. I'll never get through it here. Exactly. Find some old forgotten words or ancient melodies. He turned to me as if to say, "Hurry, boy, it's waiting there for you." Cry out in 
Listen, it's get the idea. It's not exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, oh, you skipped a bit. I love where he I wedges <laughs> a whole yeah. two, he wedges in two sentences into the one section, and it's yeah. ripping over syllables. Yeah, it's big one, time. It's one of the worst examples of like it's a it's an incredible song. But he, I can't believe a band tried to wedge that full. Sure as Kilimanjaro no rises over it is a there's too many syllables in there, man. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot going on. So talk to themselves, talk to a farm in nineteen seventy seven in Los Angeles. And uh, basically what it was was a bunch of lads who were session musicians in the LA or uh, LA area. And they kinda they wanted to keep doing session stuff, but they wanted to also write their own stuff. So um a couple of them got together. Um I'll, I'll go through the lineup of Toto was particularly strange I'm not going to do a full time line um, you can go online to find that because it's kind of fucking weird um, first album came out in 1978 and it went on made 14 albums it sold 14 million albums worldwide um, so originally this is fucking mad almost everybody in the band is kind of second generation known musician they're all like the yeah, sons true. of kind of musicians and uh, so one of the one of the first guys to um, to get it to get it together is a guy called David Page, and David Page is the son of a guy called Marty Page, who used to work with Ella Fitzgerald and Buddy Rich, Ray Charles, Elton John. Fucking the list goes on and on. He was just one of these guys, these kind of pianists and keyboard players that was always in demand. Yeah. So it's his son, um, his son that put it together, David, and him and his mate Jeff, Jeff a guy called Jeff Pacoro, uh, who was yeah. a drummer. And he was the son of Joe Pacoro, who played with like Nancy Sinatra, Randy Crawford, Donna Summer, fucking again, the list goes on and on. These were These all kids probably like spend a lot of time in the studios before they could I think so. It looks it's by the looks of it, they kind of grew up around music, playing music, and were known to all these kind of producers and stuff. So when they start playing and the outfit couldn't make a gig, he'd say, Well, my son is savage, like get him in. Like he's just me too. Yeah. Get him in as well, you know. Um now David and Jeff they had met in high school. They went to high school together. And uh, they had a little band in high school and they used to mess around, fucking mess around playing and shit like that. And another guy that they went to school was a guy called uh, David Hungate. So they brought him in on bass and they got a mate of theirs called Steve, Steve Lutkater on guitar. Now, Steve Lutkater yeah. is fucking, uh, this is the, the list that he's played on over 1,500 albums, played guitar on 1,500 yeah. albums, right? He's yeah. just one he's of these guys. An absolute monster. Now, this is where it gets kind of fucking weird. Is that the drummer, Jeff, he played drums on Michael Jackson's Beat It. And... Uh, well, loads of them did, didn't they? It, uh, exactly. Did yeah, exactly. So he oh, played drums on Beat like It. No, oh, this is fucking... So it goes separate. Yeah, it goes... This is fucking crazy, oh, right? So, oh. Jeff, the drummer, he plays drums on Beat It. Uh, Luther, Steve Lukather, he plays the main guitar riff on Beat It as well. Eddie Van Halen does the solo and shit like that, but the main guitar stuff is yeah, there. That's yeah. that's him as well. Now, Steve Bacaro, uh, the keyboard uh, player who came in after David Page. So David Page used to jump around and do loads of different stuff. They uh, they were all multi-instrumentalists. Oh, that's multi -instrumentalists. Where it's, yeah. So Steve Bacaro was another guy they brought into the band. He played synth on the entire Thriller album. Right? He done fucking everything. So... They bring in, like, oh, it's fucking insane. The, the, the layout of this band is fucking mental. So now we've got kind of two keyboard players, which is fine because a band like that could probably use two keyboard oh, yeah. players. And one will just play the fucking triangle or pick up a bassoon or something or whatever they need. And then they bring in a guy called Bobby Kimball on vocals. 
Now, Bobby Kimball sticks around for ages. He was their main singer, right? He was their main singer. He's the guy who sang on this, so he sings on on um, on Africa. Now, they do particularly well. Um, they do particularly well until about 1982. And then all of a sudden, they do super well. Like, bananas fucking good with the, the fourth album, which is the one that this is on. It's called Toto 4. Yeah. Now, it's a great album. Well, it's, it's, yeah. it's mostly, mostly great. Uh, this is their third single. I always find it weird when, like, the biggest hit is not the lead single. Oh, this album was fucking mad. I never understand. Uh, oh, they test the water. Sometimes they test the waters first. <laughs> yeah, I think they might just throw out, like, no, something that f- suits the charts yeah. to, to, to see how it does. But, I mean, I suppose we're dealing with yeah. a, a band of this kind of caliber. But they want to release early. They want to make sure that Africa is hitting the summertime. Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. Now, the guys in the band, um, while they had Toto, they were still playing on other people's albums. So they played with, like, yeah. members went on. Uh, while they were recording this album, while they were recording albums before, albums after, they were playing with Pink Floyd. They were doing stuff for Quincy Jones. They were doing stuff for mm. Eric Clapton, Paul McCartney, The Eagles, Eric Wind and Fire, Yes, Ringo Starr's band. Like the list again is fucking endless as to what these guys were doing because they were, at their heart, a session band, like obsession musicians. So they, they always kind of kept messing around with that all the time. Now, originally, where this fucking, where the riff for, for, for uh, Africa comes from, it comes from David Paik, who's kind of like messing around with his keyboard. It's just this Yamaha uh, CS80 keyboard, which would have been all the rage for a year or two. This big kind of, yeah. I think it was a, one of the first proper polyphonic keyboards. And he's just dicking around. And apparently he wrote the chorus and the main riff and everything in about 10 minutes. 10 yeah, minutes. Sometimes that just happens. Oh, yeah. Well, like I've never written an Africa song. Like, yeah, exactly, good, so. exactly. But like, what I mean is some of your best, what you think is your best come up very quickly. Yeah, exactly. So they, um, they bang it all away. They fucking come up with this song and then they're just sitting down to the session to start recording the album for and they record loads and loads and loads of songs and the last song that they record is Africa for the session and apparently it barely made the cut. Like, absolutely, barely, barely, barely made the cut. They were like, I don't think it's good enough. Like, the rest of the album is so strong because it, it kind of sounds a bit different from, from everything else that's on the album. They're like, no, let's leave it yeah. out. And someone in the, in, the, in the label or something like that said, you know what, fuck it, just throw it on. Get it on there. We we'll make a room for it. So apparently, apparently, the, like the um, the whole song was written about fucking. Uh, it's it's kind of it's kind of gibberishy. It's written about fucking Africa, oh, even though it. yeah, none of the lads had ever been to Africa. They were just watching documentaries and television and shit like that. <clears throat> now, apparently, actually, in two thousand and nineteen, so about a year and a half ago. Uh, there was this installation put into the desert in Nambia. It's like this big solar-powered array covered with speakers, and it just yeah. plays Toto Africa twenty four hours a day. Like it's on, it's on a loop forever. Like so Nambia, it's like a radio nova, radio nova in yeah, in in, in in Africa. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the singer Bobby Kimball fucks off for a while, and they bring in um, Joseph Williams, um, who's the son of John Williams. Um, to, to, to yeah. cover him so it's 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 so fucking he does like 86 to 88 so he does two years in the original band and then they brought him back in 2010 and he's playing with him now but it seems to be some sort of weird crossover it's so fucking it, like I said the, the, the layout of this band is really really weird but um, Joe Williams kept kind of I think he kind of dipped in and out with the band a couple of times he was struggling with gargle and drugs and the whole shebang yeah total, uh, total mad into the way like, yeah, yeah, uh, big time. Uh, so he only, he only actually recorded two albums for Toto, uh, Joe Williams. Like, his, one of the big things, we've talked about it before, is John Williams' son. He, he was in the band, yeah. definitely, but like, 
the band were already monstrous before him. You yeah, know what I mean? Um, he had fuck all to do with it. I only found out as well that in The Lion King, you know that fucking Hakuna Matata, you know that song? Yeah. That's him. He wrote that, did he? He's, yeah, it was him singing it. Um, oh. I know he wrote uh, he wrote and sang the lyrics for the uh, the little Ewok song at the end of Return of the Jedi as well, because his Elflub was no on set. Way. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, uh, him pretending to be an Ewok singing the fucking whatever the fucking Ewoks are singing <laughs> when the big fucking thing is going on and everybody's getting their grass grass fucking crowns made uh, but yeah listen that's Toto Africa that's my first proper fucking uh, footprint into into uh, big epics it's not yeah. it's, it's lacking the orchestral um, aspect I'm yeah just, but the, that's fine you, when, the, when it's coming towards the very end of the chorus you hear Listen to there's loads, guitar. yeah. The there's loads going getting on. Getting heavier and mm. it's getting louder towards. It's just, you can hear it. It's a yeah. bad distortion. You wouldn't think that Africa, like if you were to like go through all the settings used on Africa and you were to play that distorted guitar that's at the end of the chorus alone, mm. you'd think that's for like, I wouldn't say a Metallica song, but mm. Fucking, mm. I don't know, Rocket from the Crypt, maybe, yeah. whatever. But that guitar is fucking heavy. <laughs> it's fucking, it's it's subtle and it's not true at the whole start of it. It's just change. It, it's that it's just hefted up. It's great. Yeah, it is epic enough for me anyway. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, uh, who was your first one? My first one is a song called "Piece of the Action" by the Babies, mm. um, from nineteen seventy-seven. I found this song. Mad. Me and a friend of mine were just sitting around and drinking one day, and uh, he had like loads of these compilations that he had never listened to before. They were all the best of classic rock. And we knew all the songs. We stuck it on anyway. It's just good background noise. Yeah, and it it was like. Motorhead and it'd have even maybe a bit of Pink Floyd but then this song comes on and we're like none of us said it and yeah. we didn't want the other person to think amongst all the you other don't songs, know them so we don't know this one yeah. so yeah. it was like fuck man this mm. is fucking savage and I could see him and I realised he hadn't been talking for a couple of seconds yeah. and I was like right I'll, I'll be the one I said what's this I don't know what is it <laughs> Take the back of the CD we're like baby's piece of the action we're like mm. and I genuinely never heard of them Mm. And I hadn't at the time. And it turns out that they are something I wanted to do a podcast on, but we'd never get 12. Mm. Proto supergroup. Mm. So a supergroup, that was a supergroup before any of them were went on to do the more famous things afterwards. Ah. So I really, really wanted to do a podcast on, they would have been there, the yard boards as well. Mm. Like They were big, but the bands that went up, that came from them were bigger. I don't know if we'd get fucking 12 songs. Maybe That's not. That's I mentioned. You know. So, um, they're like a 70s rock band uh, from London. Mm. A guy called M- Michael Corby started them, but uh, he, th- th- he, seen, he left after the tour album. He seems to be the, the one that didn't really go on and do mad shit afterwards. But uh, they signed a record-breaking, like a record-breaking fee with Chrysler Records for yeah. an artist. It was crazy. Um, some of the members went on. I was going to give you a list. So mm. Ricky Phillips became the bassist for Sticks. Sticks right. are fucking really big. big. Yeah. Matt Irving went on to join Manfred Man's Earth Band. Mm. He played keyboards for Pink Floyd, Squeeze, and the Lords of the New Church, that fucking goth rock band. Yeah. Tony Brock and Willie Stockard became Rod Stewart's drummer and guitar player. Jesus. Jonathan Cain left to join a small band that was just starting out in America, and they're called Journey. Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> and then the singer is John Waite. I didn't know that till recently. John Waite no. had that massive song in a... 84, Missing You. Do you remember that? Yeah. I ain't missing you at all. No, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, it's fucking banger. Yeah. 
Wow. That's a banger. Um, so a guy called Alan McMillan, was re- McMillan is responsible for all the strings and horn section arrangement. This, And he also did stuff for Alice Cooper and Scorpions mm. as well. So he's used to putting orchestral stuff into rock bands. Yeah. So give this a bang. I had, I had yeah. to let it build up again. Freak. Kicks off straight from the start. It reminds me of a, it could be a Bond song from the 80s. All right. I'm going to get it going here. Outrageous. Um, I just love that song. Yeah, I only heard it for the first time today. Uh, getting ready really? for the, yeah, I never, I don't, never heard a single. Song I actually, thing I about actually played it. I played it on forty-five inch the night we got real drunk at Last start <laughs> You mean forget it then? It's over. Yeah, I don't remember. I, I can't remember why. Yeah, I just remember being in my box going. I think I played that. <laughs> not have actually. Yeah, but yeah, it's 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 some fucking song. Yeah, I absolutely love it. Outrageous. And, and, and towards the end of it. John uh, White starts getting even more intense mm. and everything everything sort of stays the same it doesn't really push but his vocal mm. He, mm. he takes it up a notch and by the end of it you're just like that's a big ginormous epic like it's mm. an epic fucking song and uh, yeah I absolutely love it that's Baby's piece of the action from 1977 very very good I think it's called The Heartbreak um, who's your second Broken Heart or Broken Heart I think the name of the album is something that's like. Broken Heart that's really yeah. true uh, my next one uh, is Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2. Uh, it's probably it's up there with, amongst my favourite U2 songs, and um, it really encapsulates the frustration of a Sunday as well. It really does. Yeah, <laughs> it must be the f- fifth time we've made that joke in the last month. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. care either. It's so good. Um, yeah, Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2. I, I, I had to. This is to me. This is very different from most of their U2 songs. And uh, it was received very differently as well from most of their U2 songs. Right. Um, so this U2, fucking U2, formed in 1976 in Dublin in, um, in my school that I went to. 
and uh, so we used to have great fun looking at all the pictures on the walls, trying to find the lads out of the band. Um, they were, that was that was an actual hobby. If you went to Mount Temple, uh, it was people's hobby to go looking for lads and you two. I mean, like, like where's Bolly Yeah, exactly. That's what it was like. And everybody had it worked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, this song was released in 1983. It's off the War album. And uh, it was a third single off the War album. The other singles were New Year's Day, Two Hearts Beat as One, and 40. Now, this, this wasn't very well received. This is their, their first ever number one album in the UK, actually. But it was poorly received right. by UK critics. Um, because it's called Sunday Bloody Sunday, isn't it? Like they're hardly going yeah. to be just amazing. <laughs> so this is kind of, this is like you two started off as kind of a, a post punk band in that scene, and then kind of kind of quickly made their way into the into that kind of classical set, late seventies, early eighties kind of pop scene where you could be, you could look like whatever, you and put the music all had the same kind of lovely round edge, you know, because uh, everybody was yeah. selling millions of fucking copies, and if we weren't selling millions of copies, the label didn't want anything to do with you. Uh, it's so mad, that, isn't it? Yeah, it's sell fucking millions. crazy. You don't sell millions? Yeah. Fucking shake. Exactly, yeah. Now you sell 10,000, because they're tripping over themselves. You might sell you might sell 100 t-shirts in a month, and they're fucking happy with that. Um, it was recorded in Windmill Lane in Dublin by producer Steve yeah. Lillywhite, who was done XTC, Big it's, Country, Susie and the Banshees, he's amazing. Simple Moyens, uh, Psychedelic Force, David Bourne, The Rolling Stones, The Pogues, Morrissey, Killers, Counting Crows, the list goes on and on and on. This album actually knocked uh, Thriller off the number one spot in the UK charts. Huh, we just talked about that. Yeah, exactly. I'm not that's surpri- how big I'm, it was. I'm so, I sort of am and I'm not surprised that the positive response to this was kind of Yeah, this was like... Yeah. Although, although at the same time, it's probably slimmer than an English history book. Yeah, well, to be fair, most, most, uh, I think maybe most people over there wouldn't even know what he was singing about. Um, the, the thing was that this might have brought a little bit more of attention to that. So they were like, well, that's not... He does come out live, live version. This is not a rebel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, yeah, that's why I'm not dancing to it. If it was a rebel song, we'd be dancing to it. Yeah. I know, like, <laughs> it's, 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 it's phenomenal, but it's, it's clearly not a rebel song. Relax, but we, we, yeah, we know, chill out, will you? Know, yeah. You know you want to hang out with Tony Blair later yeah. on in life, so yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, so this was this is almost a return for uh, for you two to that kind of having a, a slightly more edgy post punk feel. Like the guitars yeah. aren't draped and fucking in reverb and phasers and chorus pedals. The edge kind of went a little bit more straight ahead with this. Um, mm. Drums are a little it's bit more straight such ahead. A good, it's such a it's, good. Some, it's amazing. Um, but the drums there was there was more draw over the drums because they were real simple. Um, those people were complaining. All the critics were like, "The drums are just—he's just doing bang, 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 bang." Fucking. Is he not? Is he not? Did he not cop that he's? Oh God! He, yeah, it's he, a military so march. Like, yeah, for fuck's sake. Yeah, oh, so people were giving out. It was like, "What's this fucking drum beating?" And uh, the band had to come out. So like, it's a military beat. Like that's this song about like you the way you, like the way you would do on the march. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, let's he's play a bit of it. Let's yeah, let's play a, play a bit here. Yeah.
Sunday, bloody Sunday, boy, you too. Now, oh, it's, uh, so good. It, it's amazing. It's, it's shocking, is what it is. It's fucking shocking. Uh, now, you can hear the violin in the background there, right? It's it's what, it sounds weird. It sounds yeah. weird. Yeah, there's a violin in the background. And what it is, the violin was added by a guy called Steve Wickham, who was a, who was a, a fucking musician from Marino in Dublin. And one day, he was waiting on his bus to go to work down at the Keys. And he walks by with the edge. And he turns around mm. to edge and he goes, come here, you, I heard you are recording. Like, he shouts at him. So he's recording down the road there in Wimmer Lane. Edge, does he need any, uh, any violin? And Edge goes, yeah, fuck it, come on. So they walk well. out. Yeah, they walk down the Wimmer Lane. And it uh, brings him in. He uh, spends a couple of hours, like four or five hours, just learning the song, listening to the song. Goes in, fucking had his, his violin with him. Troll mic in front of him. Wimp, does the whole fucking thing everything you hear is like his takes there's nothing added in nothing taken out of it um, Steve Wickham goes on later on to join the Water Boys becomes yeah, one of the like, yeah. Yeah. he's one of the guys that uh, invented like the fuzz fiddle which is like you run your fucking your violin through with the distortion pedal and you, you make that fucking right. that fucking weird thing that the Water That's Boys are mad for yeah so uh, yeah he was one of the, the he saw somebody else mess with uh, guitar pedals with a violin once and he was like I'm fucking I'm going to boil out of these now and act the bollocks and see if I can create a sound yeah. so he ended up kind of coming up with this signature sound for his violin by using guitar pedals and um, he actually he's the guy responsible for relocating the Water Boys to Dublin so um, when he joined the band off the back of this single he was like I'm fucking playing with you too now so the Water Boys were like got on to him was like we looking for a violin player so like, oh, I'll join the Water Boys and then he was like I'm going back yeah. home you should come over to Dublin though, because it's much better than England. Like it's savage over here. You like I got picked yeah. up by fucking U two and all. Like literally waiting for the bus, stall it over. So the water boys are basically for, for ages. Literally happens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, all the time. Um. So yeah, like I said, this is like a real kind of uh, it's a big change for U two in the way they approach the music. Uh, like this is the first song that Larry Mullen ever used a click track for. He hated click tracks. Hated them. And uh, yeah, most most drummers kind of do. Yeah, until they get used to them. But apparently Mullen, uh, he met someone. Who the fuck did he meet? He met someone. Fuck, who was it? I cannot remember. He met some other drummers, a big famous drummer. And he was giving out about, do you fucking want me to use this blade click track for the album? And I'm answering him and I was like, mm. yeah. Like, once I learned how to use a click track, because it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Ever happened to me. Like, everything's so much better. And like, you half your time in the studio, because if you do need to do edits, everything's on time. And you can jump back in and everything's perfect. And he was like, oh, give her a shot then. So in he goes and fucking bangs this out. And I think he's, he's, he's had a decent enough relationship with them, uh, with them afterwards. So like, they definitely have a drum track because they, they've got all that, like, they've got all those, like, cues in your ears. Don't ah, yeah. Used, you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have used them as, as a kind of the music you do. But when, when you're on tracks with about 800 fucking samples and stuff yeah. like that, you have these ear clicks that are going, three, two, one, and then Bono. Yeah. So yeah. it's just so he's constantly using you know it's easy to not get distracted then it's fucking weird. exactly. So they decided yeah, that, to make that, that, make, that, that requires a, sorry, that requires a fucking drum track to start with. You can't not do that and oh yeah, yeah drum, so big time. Like, whatever about in the yeah. in the like lawyer, but like in in the studio he just never fucking used anything like this before. Yeah. Um so this is a big change in the, their their kind of direction because the previous albums and songs were all kind of kind of spiritual and about being young at heart and all this kind of show. And now they were getting a little bit more political, like um, like New Year's Day is about the the, the partisans in Poland, like the Polish Solidarity Movement and stuff like that. You know, mm-hmm. um, the song called Seconds is about uh, fucking nuclear meltdowns and why why are we allowing nuclear 
fucking uh, power to infiltrate Europe and all this kind of shit, you know. Um, the album itself, what's kind of weird is the album itself was pretty short. And you're, uh, this is a cool little fact I found out. When it was originally put onto cassette, the album was so short that you could fit uh, the entire album on each side of the album, uh, of the cassette. Yeah, so just re- repeat it, didn't Yeah, you? so like each side of the cassette had the entire album on it. Which is mad weird. What is it, fucking 25 minutes or something? I don't know. Maybe. Like it's just fucking flew through. Um, so this was, this was off uh, War, the album. I think the one before that was Boy. It was a little bit longer. Um, so yeah, so, so whatever it was, it was like sixty. So it'd have to be, it'd have to be just under thirty minutes. Um, unless they, unless they had 40. ninety minutes. I don't know. In the early eighties, I think it might have been just sixty oh, no, minute tapes. No, there's forty five minutes either side, didn't they? I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. As long as the space inside yeah. the cassette allowed for it, you could put as much tape in there as possible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think the gimmick was that like we could fit all of this onto one spool of tape. You know what I mean? We don't have to use the second yeah. side of it. So let's not split it. Let's just have it. That'd be real cool if we have the entire album on each side, like I said. Now, previous versions that came out after it, they split the album. But it's just a first run of cassettes, which would be cool. So now I'm going to yeah. keep my eye out. If I ever see someone selling the tape collection, I'm going to keep an eye out for YouTube War to see if I can get a copy of the one that's all on one side. So that'd be just a cool little thing to have. Um, yeah, it would, yeah. Just to have on the fucking shelf, be fun. Uh, that was like Sunday Bloody Sunday. Like I said, to me, that's one of the biggest U2 songs for me. I love it. It has that hair in the back of your neck feel, which is what I'm looking for in most of these epic songs. I mean, there's, there's, listen, the songs out there that are great and good and they're savage. I'm like, Jesus Christ, that was super. But they're not fucking, they don't have that like, oh man, that's like, yeah. Ep- epic song is epic for a reason. They usually come maybe at the si- end of side A or maybe at the end of the album. Something yeah. There's just, there's just something. Yeah, just, I always say there's like, there's a connection between like epic and like stuff that like boxers or wrestlers or UFC guys come out to. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we'll, this, we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that later. There's a reason yeah. for that. And I found out today. Oh, very good. That was a YouTube Bloody Sunday. Uh, who was your next one? My next one is Out of Sight by Spiritualized from... Um, Deadly. 2001, yeah. Mm. So this is from their fourth album, Let It Come Down, which is sort of inspired by the album Born to Be With You by Dion, which was produced by Phil Spector, which has that big epic wall of sound mm. Mm. Uh, thing. So that gave Jason Pierce, who's the guy behind Spiritualized, and he's also an ex-member of Spaceman today. It gave him the inspiration to sort of approach this, this fourth album with a more orchestral wall of sound kind of feel. Yeah. And you can especially hear it very very much so in this song um, it has absolutely brilliant orchestr- orchestration there's mm. a kind of little story about this album beforehand um, he was going out with a Calvin Klein model called Katie Radley right. um, who, according to a lot of people Yoko Ono his band Spaceman 3 by just putting up, like, being around in every rehearsal every everything you know that when someone brings yeah, their yeah. Par- partner to the thing too much so they split up. Some people said in the band it was as a result of this, and he created Spiritualized hmm. and actually had Katie, Katie, excuse me, Radley playing keyboards in the band. Here's a fucking mad one, though. They were going out and in love and all or whatever. Now, I don't know how good or bad the relationship was in 1997, but, hmm. or 1995. But it turns out, while she was in the band with him, releasing albums, touring with Spiritualized, she went off and secretly married Richard Ashcroft from The Verve. Fucking hell. And they, for two years, stayed in Spiritualized, married, 
secretly Richard Ashcroft. And that drama exploded in 1997. I remember that drama exploding. Mm. It was fucking crazy. Because I was a big fan of uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, We Are Floating in Space, the album before this, which is yeah. exceptional. Exceptional fucking album. Like, unbelievable. It's the album that comes in a pillbox and you actually put the right, CD yeah. out of foil. Yeah. And this one, this album, has a, I had the original one, the imprinted face on it. And mm. So after this album, um, they, or after that album, after the whole debacle, they created this... Um, let it come down album, which is it's really really fucking great album, and it does bear a lot of resemblance to the feel of that Dion yeah. album, which I gave a listen to today. I was like, yeah, just some people. We could pick that up on vinyl as well. Mm. Um, so Jason Pierce is not able to read music like, like a lot of musicians. Yeah. Um, so, but the problem is when you're writing an orchestral piece, yeah, you can either hand it off to someone else to arrange it, mm. but he didn't do that. He wrote all the parts by singing them all separately into a portable tape recorder. Wow. He transcribed them all onto piano yeah. for each uh, musician to, mm. to, to know what they were doing. And they could do that then. So it's, it's a bit of a 50-50. The album has 115 session musicians on it. Fucking um, hell. Orchestras, and it has the London Community Gospel Choir members. Um, stick it on there. Stick yeah. it on. Give it, a, give it a lash there, sure. Here we go. We'll have a listen.
it's very it's very big isn't it so yeah, very big it. it's uh yeah it's crazy that like after all that show you just went they're going to release this big monster of a huge big killer of the and uh, that's 19, 19 years ago excuse me so yeah that's that song i've really nothing else to say to it jay spaceman or jay pierce jason pierce yeah. is um a strange strange enough fella but he's uh he's very talented very talented mm. guy who or who's your next epic? Give me an epic. Uh, my next one is uh, 10538 Overture by Electric Light Orchestra, which is uh, yeah, one of the original a, daddies. One. Yeah, one of the original daddies. Now, I have to say that I have picked the 40th anniversary re-recorded version of it from Jeff Lindsay ELO as opposed to the original right. recording. The original recording, I fucking love to death. Um, but the cello sounds so bad in it now there's a reason i'll get to that now in a second the cello sounds so bad that it fucking it bothers me and uh even though the song is fucking amazing i just there's something about it when i heard uh jeff lynn's re-recorded version of it was like uh i think i like that as well so for just for this podcast yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna use the re-recorded one yeah. it's it's very very close it's just cleaner with something that's being tuned uh by, oh, yeah, people, by people who know how to tune the cello I, I should have actually done a fucking yeah. side by side, but well, I'll put up the um, I'll put up the link to the original one on the Facebook page. It's hard to do that when we're on doing it. Like, yeah, oh, like this yeah. is such a this is such a great this song, song so blows my fucking mind every time I hear it, and I only I I reheard it for the first time in years. There, fucking couple of weeks ago, I was like, fuck man, I forgot about that song. I was like, this is one of the big daddies of them all. This is one of the, this is like yeah. where rock and orchestral instruments finally kind of came together there were songs that had orchestras in them before but this is where like the orchestra's in the band now like there's john he plays the fucking violin as opposed to just some fucking uh random fucking cellist that they hired in for the session you know uh i'm gonna play a bit of it just so people understand what's going on i'm gonna play about two minutes of this just so you get get it get a feel for it for of the um the 14th anniversary re-recorded version here we go
is the pizza of songs. I could have that every day, man, and never get bored of it. Yeah. It's, it's it reminds me of Dear Prudence, but if I'm being honest, I do think it's a better song than Dear Prudence. It's, 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 it's older. Goes. No, it's just uh, no Beatles would be like ah yeah 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 sixty oh, uh, yeah, but it's 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 a better. It just is a better song, I think. Oh, fucking and it's only it's only a fucking like a scale that they kind of rub it. It does feel That's like we were thinking, that sounds like Dear Prince, but by the end it was like, no okay, it's better. <laughs> so ELO formed in 1970 as three of them involved as starters, Jeff Lynne, Roy Wood, and Bev Bevan. Now, by 1972, Roy Wood has left. So ELO in its classical kind of format only existed um, for two years. That's it. Um, so once he leaves, mm. Jeff Lynne becomes the main songwriter. Now, Roy Wood is fucking mad. I'll get to him now in a minute. Uh, Bev Bevan, he jumps around a bit as well. There's kind of a mad timeline for this band. So they do 1970 to 1983, knocking on the head. 1985 to 1986, knocking on the head. 2000, 2001, knocking on the head. And then 2014, the, the kind of now, they're still bumming around doing stuff. So uh, the band kind of disintegrates and Jeff Lynne takes over. And Jeff Lynne's like, I'm going to have Jeff Lynne's ELO. Right. Now, it's not always called Jeff Lynne's ELO. Sometimes it's just ELO. Sometimes it's Jeff Lynne's ELO. Depends on what humor kind of strikes him that day. Um, Bev, the drummer, goes on and plays Black Sabbath for a while. Uh, he played on one album. He played on uh, Eternal Idol for Sabbath. Uh, Roy Wood forms Wizard, who to I wish it could be Christmas every day. That's him, right? Live, live off that forever. Pretty much. Pretty well, much. they probably did a lot, but I'm saying they didn't have to. <laughs> they had they had one more they had one more single after that that don't particularly go. But like he's he's the singer, the, the guy who looked like an actual wizard, like caveman wizard, yeah. with all of the face paint and shit. Shitty That's, if there was no one in that band that looked like a wizard. It's pretty much yeah. yeah so that was Roy right. Wood. Now, fucking before ELO, fucking Jeff Lynne and Roy Wood had a band, and um, they would fucking this song. Uh, 10538 Overture is actually the first song that ELO ever released and recorded but it was written for their original band who I have their name written down I'll tell you what it is now in a second I think they were called The Move or something like that Um, but but before that like Wood uh, Roy Wood he went to to the States and he came back He, he had this concept in his head about a band that would like broke kind of standard you know, guitar, bass, drums, former. He had this in his head and then he met Jeff Lynne and Jeff Lynne was like, yeah, I'm mad into that. Like, that's something I've been thinking about doing for ages as well because I play a ton right. of instruments and you play a ton of instruments. So why don't we just get like a real solid drummer and me and you can fuck around with loads of different instruments and, and have yeah. the crack and see what we can write. So Roy Wood had been, he'd actually he sang fucking backup for oh. Jimi Hendrix on uh, Access Bowl of Love. So he had a couple of kind of record company contacts as well. And uh, he, he actually he ended up believing like Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, he fucked up Jimi Hendrix to start this band with Jeff Lynne. And then he ends up leaving, leaving ELO. He had a big fight with the management. He never had a fight with Jeff himself. He just had a, right. had a row with the management. So like I said, this is the first ever ELO song. Uh, it came out in 1972. Uh, it was supposed to be a B-side for another single. And uh, they, by the time they were finished with it, they're like, that's really fucking good, actually. Let's, no, let's yeah. keep that. The song is about an escape prisoner. Yeah, it's about an escape prisoner. And uh, the song title, 1053, is the serial number of the mixing console that they made the, the song on. And they added an eight to the end of it because they needed it to rhyme with something in the song. So it just got an eight. 
throwing at the end of it. Just fucking throwing out in it. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> now when they were uh, when they were recording it, Roy had this like shitty knockoff Chinese cello that just been banging around in his flat for ages. And uh, when they went into the recording studio, he just dragged it in with him one day. He said, we fucking need it. And Jeff Lynne had this song. He had, the, he had most of the song written anyway. So he was playing it, and Jeff just grabbed the cello and started like, room, 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 because he couldn't really play it. Not really, not properly. He yeah. couldn't tune it or anything like that. So they just they banged it together, and he ended up doing a fucking shit ton of takes. They just kept layering it and layering it and layering it. I think they got along like a French horn. Or they knew someone that had a French horn that came in and done the, the thing at the start. The, bah, yeah, it's, the, it's literally like, like he, he admits all the time that he's massively influenced by the Beatles. So yeah. It starts off with Dear Prudence and it ends like I am the Walrus. Yeah, yeah exactly. It ends up then, it, it does that kind of bounce. Um, so th- yeah. this is like, like it's, it's such a weird mix of like pop and rock and classical, which is what they always, always wanted to do. Which they always wanted to match it together. So like, I, I always remember the first time I heard this going like, the fuck is this? Like, cause I'd heard, obviously there'd been loads of music that had classical instruments on it before. But when I, when I heard that, like everybody who plays these instruments, like is in the band, like this is a thing. Like they might jump in and out, but they're not necessarily session guys. Like those, like this is meant to be in the song. It hasn't been added on like Metallica S and M or something like that. Like the song is not going to work without these fucking instruments in there, and it's such a big part of the identity of the band where yeah. they're always got kind of ranging. Like when they say like electrically orchestra, I don't mean like classical orchestra. I mean orchestra in terms of like a massive mix of instruments and whatever they can find that sounds kind of cool. That's what's going to end up on there. You end up with the cool organ stuff and like, the, some of the, mm. some of those fucking songs are just they're outrageous. And do you know what's mad, right? Whenever I think of electric like like ELO, I think like that's a big fucking band. But it, like, I always thought that they should have been bigger. There's something in my head. Like I know ELO are huge, and loads of people love ELO, and they seem to be like a real die in the shed band. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Do you think they should be as big as Dire Straits or Rolling Stones or something? Something like that, yeah. That's I have, like, there's something that is... I think, but I thought that as well, but I didn't realise they are a little bit bigger than I initially thought. They're definitely bigger than I think, but I don't think they're at that fucking... Like, they, I remember they, like, Jeff Lane done, uh, Jeff Lane's ELO done a gig in, like, the the Tree Arena uh, a couple, like, two, two or three years ago. So like yeah. whatever at max capacity that's like between eight to ten thousand depending on the stage size. You know what I mean? I don't know if it's sold yeah. out. And then like someone who someone who I think like they should be on par with is doing like Crow Park to eighty thousand people or a hundred thousand whatever. You know what I mean? Such a weird guess, dichotomy yeah. of fucking styles because it's, like Jeff Lynne is such such a big name in music scene for like writing songs for other people and like producing. Yeah. Really, before I think he might have ended up on my. He made up on. Uh, I think he made. He might have made onto the producers. I um, yeah. He's been mentioned a couple of times. He's just been involved. In so I, many I, I big picked, songs. I picked the for something. Yeah, I think yeah there's just such a big, big fucking song. Uh, like the, one of the guys, I think. <laughs> like talking about this epic thing for me, this is the first melding of kind of rock and roll and classical that is meant to be, as opposed to just being a layer to make the song better. But like for me. The closest I ever heard to this would have been like some of the kind of later Frankie Valley stuff as well, um, yeah. where it was that kind of Las Vegasy big band type of fucking, uh, fucking oh what a night type of thing, where it was all 
uh, like you've got like could be 40 musicians on stage all working towards the singular purpose of fulfilling their role in this song you know it's such a such a a, a a beautiful mix of fucking instruments that ELO brought to the table. Anyway, that was yeah. ELO, and that was 10538 Overture, which is one of my favourites. I, I love the bits. Who was your next one? Um, so I'm going to be sneaky and not tell you the name of the song until we play it, because okay. uh, it's just it's been a dick sometimes. Uh, this song, is I love this song. It originated as an instrumental demo under the name E-Ballad. Mm-hmm. That's what it was called, E-Ballad, uh, written by a guitarist in 1990. And it was one of five songs on a compilation tape that circulated all around. Um, well, we won't say where it was, but it ended up in San Diego in the hands of a young lad walking at a, a gas station. Yeah. So the singer took the tape and recorded, there's five songs on it, and he recorded three of them, vocals for the three of them, mailed it back to the guitarist. Mm. The guitarist heard it and went, shit. Get to Seattle like now. So on his way there, he wrote this other song as well over the lyric, over the instrumental called E Ballad. So just stick it on there Hmm. and we'll tell you then. We'll know who it is then. This was originally E Ballad. And on the way, on the way to the meeting to change his fate forever, he wrote this. They can guess who it is. Yes, it's uh, E Ballad, <laughs> also known as Black by Pearl Jam. So yeah, that guitarist was a uh, Stone Gossard with his little demo tape, the Stone Gossard demos ninety one, and uh, found his way into the hands of Eddie Vedder, mm. who then uh, renamed it Black. Was as he was on the bus or whatever it was, whoever he got mm. to, to uh, presumably he took a bus. He'll be writing songs while they're in the car. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah, boy. Well, that's to be one of their most loved songs, and yeah. one of my favorite songs of all time. I don't think there's any 
strings or classical instrument per se. I don't think um, it's just it's all still, layered real nice. It does, it does still fucking feel massively epic. Mm. So uh, Rick Rick Parshner plays piano and Hammond organ on it to help them out. And um, that's Black by Pearl Jam. Simple Very as that. Good. Not much to say good. about it. It's a big, big, dirty epic and I love it. Yeah. Here's your next one. Next one, uh, I'm just going to hit go on. Here we go. Go on. Obviously, for whom the bell tolls by Metallica. Uh, so good. It's 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 so It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. It's so It's so good. 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 And ended up relocating them to San Francisco, I think, to where they wanted to be. Uh, 10 albums, 5 EPs, 125 million albums worldwide. Obviously, probably the biggest metal band of all time. Uh, this yeah. album was recorded in Copenhagen, Sweden, with producer Fleming Rasmussen. What a fucking name, Fleming Rasmussen. Um, he done, he done Ride the Lightning for them. He done Master of Puppets. He done Justice for All. He also done albums for Morbid Angel, Blowing Guardian, uh, and Rainbow. And it was Rainbow, uh, the album he made for Rainbow was the one that uh, Lars and, and James were like, Jesus Christ, like, we have to go. We have to get this fucking guy. And obviously Lars wanted to go back to fucking, he wanted to go to Sweden. He wanted to go and go to Northern Europe because that's obviously where his family are from. So that's where yeah, he wanted not too to go. Far from to, not too far from to pop into a exactly. Denmark. Denmark. Yeah, yeah, Denmark. Yeah, he wanted to go to Northern Europe just to be in that kind of part of the part of the world again. I think he had family in Sweden as well who were going to look after him. Um, yeah. Because there was, even though, like, Kill 'Em All done well for them, but it was it was really master of puppets before they were fucking huge. Like there was oh, a big yeah. a big dispute with Roy Lightning over who was going to pay for it and all this kind of shit. Like they were signed to how the fuck was it Metal Blade? I can't remember who the Megaforce Megaforce Records thing signed to them, and they weren't going to pay for it. So I had to go and find like 
someone else to pay for it. They found like some publishing company that were going to pay for them to go over and record this thing. And um, yeah, fucking. Now, one of the things I found out as well is that even though they don't kill them all, kill them all, done kind of well. Uh, James Hetfield didn't want to sing. He's like, I fucking hate singing. I don't think I'm a good singer. I really like playing guitar. I'm only singing because we, we couldn't find anyone else to sing. So yeah. he got on the phone and he rings John Bush from Armored Saint, who would later on go to front uh, Anthrax as well. And he gets on to John yeah. Bush. He's like, listen, do you want to be the singer with Metallica? We're starting to do all right. But like, I just want to play guitar, man. I fucking pay me bollocks. I don't want to go. We've got this, all these songs written and I really don't want to go over and like have to fucking sing and play guitar. It's just not, I'm not into it. And John Bush yeah. says, listen, fucking normally I jump on it, but Armored Saints are doing particularly well. Like, so I'm sorry, man. I have, oh, to, oh. I have to say doing, no. Doing Metallica well, were they? Yeah. yeah. Now, well, whether they would have done, yeah, exactly. Whether they would have done as well with fucking John Bush singing. I thought John Bush is a fantastic singer, um, but he's very oh, different yeah. from Hetfield. Like, yeah. It would have been, no. been very interesting to hear. I'd still love to hear. Um, I'd love to hear fucking Bush sing him with Metallica. It's never going to happen. Like, it's just he'd be buying tickets to go and see Metallica. You know what I mean? He's not, yeah. He probably wouldn't even be invited. Uh, so that the main riff for whom the bell tolls was one of Cliff Burton's riffs, and uh, the yeah. thing at the start, the fucking the uh, that's a, a bass guitar with a wah wah pedal, which is one of the things that made Lars and James very interested in Cliff when they seen him playing with his other band. I'm like, this dude was playing with a fucking wah wah pedal and it sounds real cool. Like, it sounds like another guitar. Mm. And he's able to keep up the funk and the fucking low end and drive everything along. But, like, in some of these bits, so, he just. So good. So good. He just clicks on the fucking. Uh, he clicks into the, into the, the, the wah wah pedal and he's able to do his kill shit. Now, the riff was something that uh, Borton had floating around for, from years ago, from when he was in school. That used to be like a little warm up riff that he had uh, for playing with like, his little high school band. And uh, mm. they used to, uh, when every, pretty much every other band he was ever in, they used to use a bit of that riff to uh, sound check before gigs and shit. That was just one of these things he had floating around in his head all the time. Yeah. And the reason, one of the reasons that Roy the Lightning sounds so different from Kill em All is that Cliff Burton could actually read and write music and understood music theory. So while they were touring with Kill em All, he was teaching the lads a little bit of music theory. He was like, well, you know, if you play this yeah. chord, as opposed, as opposed to just like, playing every single note on the fucking guitar trying to find something that sounds good like I can automatically tell you what's not going to sound good like and what's going to fit in there so we start teaching them little bits of fucking music theory that eventually kind of like, fucking drip to their way into their brains the same with um with Lars Lars used to be just one of these fucking thousand mile an hour drummers so he, had, he hadn't a clue how to use click tracks hadn't a clue like when to use like restraint and refrain and Cliff was the guy who kind of brought all that together and taught them how to make actual music. So, yeah. Um, we, we covered Cliff dying before. We're not, not going to cover him fucking dying again. But, uh, like I said, I Bush so. said, did Bush it? said, no, huh? We yeah, did. Sure we, we did. We did. We uh, done it on, uh, we done a bass player. And then we done, we done uh, instrumentals as well, where Orion was in instrumentals. So we, we got, Ryan, we got yeah, of course, yeah. Um, so yeah, like I said, Bush said no. The name of the album, Roy the Lightning, comes from uh, Stephen King's book, The Stand. It's about somebody uh, being electrocuted, hence the fucking yeah. um, electric chair on the front of it. Like I said, it's not an awful lot to say about this. this. This, for me, is the beginning of the big, epic Metallica songs where they realize, like, we fucking slow everything down a little bit. We start, like, using cool, like, the, the bell and the bell makes it. You know what I mean? The bell fucking makes it. 
um, hitting on every fucking fart or whatever it is. Like, it's just so fucking good. Um, so you got like this little bit of kind of musicality that's coming through after the absolute madness of trash metal, like them essentially inventing trash metal. Um, they, well, actually, trash metal came from Anthrax's Metal Trash and Mads. Well, however. Yeah. Um, but like Metallica would have been one of the the definite forefront bands for quote unquote trash metal. Um, to come out with that and still keep loads of that in the album, but also add in new stuff. It's like okay, we can make the fast bits sound twice as fast by like keeping everything clipping along at a medium pace here, and even going slow yeah. sometimes. And that way, then when we do double down and go into the fucking the stuff people want to hear, it's going to sound like people's faces are fucking melting. So, it does. Yeah, exactly. It really does. But that's one of my favourite Metallica songs for whom the bell tolls. It's fucking... That album, to be honest with you, fucking Kill Em All, Ma, uh, Ride the Light and Master Puppets, Justice For All. I don't think there's really any bad, bad songs on any of those albums. Um, the songs that aren't as good, but yeah. there's nothing bad, bad on any of those albums. Like, there's really not. Uh, there's nothing that you'd yeah. skip. There's, there's nothing that you'd skip on any of those first four albums. Uh, Justice For All starts going up and down our ass a tiny bit, but it always brings it back. It always brings it back. Oh, yeah. I still think I still think Justice might be my favourite album. I'm not sure. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. But yeah, I get it. I get it. I'm not sure. Anyway, that was uh, Metallica by Whom the Bell Told. Who is your next one? My next one is a song from 1997, and it is from Depeche Mode's comeback album. Mm. It's a single, but what makes it unusual is it's one of the more, more uncommon songs that isn't mm. sung by Dave Gann. It's sung by Martin Gore, and it's a oh. uh, home. I think it's one of one of my favorite Depeche Mode songs, one of the most dark, mm. beautiful songs that they've ever done. But it's kind of funny because it's it's the first album without Alan Wilder, who was the kind of got, yeah. I think, the, the proper got of Depeche Mode. He came in when um, Vince Clark left. Vince Clark was the more the pop guy, hence Yazoo and Razor. Um, mm. But it's it's weird because it still continues in an incredibly Alan Wilder style. Like he, he his his imprint is still a lot on it now. I don't know whether he wrote any of it. it it's not said, but um, his influence is very much there because it's grungy, mm. electronic, goth rock. This whole album, uh, Ultra, and it's absolutely incredible. So love this album, yeah. Give, yeah, give it a last there. This is this is uh, Martin Gore on vocals as opposed mm. to uh, Dave.
pretty epic to me anyway. Yeah. That's um, big, one of the more big. epic songs. One of the more epic songs, yeah, on Ultra. Um, the strings scored, sort of, and conducted by uh, Richard Niles mm. and Graham Perkins did the string coordination. I don't know what the difference between those are, but maybe somebody would be able to tell us. Those were on track three. That's, that is home off, I think. So, yeah, that's mm. a good song. Um, that's one of my favourite Depeche Mode songs, strangely enough, not sung by, um, and strangely enough, one of the four songs without Alan Wilder, who's phenomenal fucking... See, before this, the, the band were about to knock on the head, completely yeah. knocked on the head. Um, songs of Fate and Devotion had fucking like, cracked them apart. Dave Gowan was banging all the gear into himself. Yeah. Uh, they weren't really talking much. They were just saying <laughs> each other. And uh, Dave Gowan possibly fucking getting overdosed. Yeah, he overdosed before this album came out. So yeah, this was more of a real fresh start and comeback. But Alan Wilder had, had enough to do that. So, See you later. Um, yeah, that's the Pesh Mode. Ultra, mm. 1990, one of my favorite albums from yeah. one of my favorite years in music. And uh, yeah, if you don't know this song, you do now. Uh, who's the next one? Do. Next one is uh, one of the, the the big ones of the fucking epic genre, and it's uh, Cashmere by Led Zeppelin. Oh, it's ha- the first one I thought of. Yeah, kind of had to had to go in the list, didn't it? Um, yes. So uh, Led Zeppelin formed in 1968 in London. This song, Cashmere, is from uh, Physical Physical Graffiti, their sixth studio album. Um, this song took three years to write, which is fucking mental. Jeez. And it, yeah, it's considered one of two progressive epics by by Zeppelin. The other one being Stairway to Heaven. Um, mm. It's also considered to be by the band. They think that's their best song that they ever wrote. It's fucking great. It's super. So we're gonna play a bit, and we'll come back and talk about it um, in a mm. second. I'm gonna just hit, get it going from the start here. <laughs> Led Zeppelin off Physical Graffiti the version I attached there is off um, Mothership which is a compilation album of uh, yeah. kind of remastered just cleaner sometimes it works better where playing stuff on digital medium I think sometimes it's easier to just play stuff um, that's been remastered for digital medium yeah. you want to hear the original go buy the fucking record put it on um, don't be annoying me about it saps <laughs> um, 
So it's named after after Kashmir, which is a northern region of the Indian subcontinent, but no one in the band had ever been there, right? So uh, mm. the song was was uh, was inspired by a drive through southern Morocco, and uh, they, that's kind of where they got all of their all the let the sun beat down upon my face and see the mountains and blah 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 blah. Right. Um, so it's a song about India, but it's uh, written about Morocco. So take from that what you will. I'm sure eventually they ended up in fucking in India. I'm sure they played there at some stage, but um, by the time this was written, they hadn't been there. But uh, they definitely went to Morocco, the capital of hash. And uh, <laughs> having the best of crack. But yeah, everybody in the band thinks that this is this is probably their best song. This incorporates all the all the different styles of music and the uh, things that inspired them and interest them kind of all folded into one song. They lo- love playing it, all this type of shit. Now, sound found there was something cool as well, is that 1988, a rapper called Schooly D had a song on, uh, he had a song, what was it called? It was called Signifying Rapper on the movie Bad Lieutenant, where Harvey Cotel's 1992 was the song. Yeah. Um, sorry, 1992 was the movie, it was when it came out. But he'd released this song called Signifying Rapper in 1988, and it made it onto this movie in the early 90s. And no one gave a shit. Like, people had heard the song, but nobody really gave a shit about it. But Bad Lieutenant done, like, got real famous real quick because it was so fucking mad. It was barred. It was banned all oh, yeah. across Europe. Fucking you name it. It was banned across they most of the fucking They made a mad, weird spiritual successor to it years later with Nick They Cage. made one with Nick Cage. Bad Lieutenant 2, New Orleans or something like that. And it's... I don't know... Okay. I watched that as well and I can't remember I couldn't tell you what the connection is it's just about a bad yeah. lieutenant bad lieutenant is mad <laughs> it's fucking bad shit Matt it's fucking it's, I, got, I bought a bootleg of that in Georgia Street Arcade it must have been fucking 22 years ago and there used to be this like weird little lane that was in Georgia Street Arcade I think it's like toilets now but there used to be this little you walk down this little corridor and there was a little, little box room at the end of it and there was a bloke who just sold like ropey bootleg videotapes and he had all the band stuff. <laughs> like, whatever you wanted. He didn't sell porn. It was just band movies. And he had yeah. all of it. Fucking Man Bites Dog. Fucking Bad Lieutenant. Um, I don't even remember what else was banned. There was a bunch of them fucking banned over here. Uh, Clockwork Orange was banned over here. Uh, fucking what else? There was a bunch of them. But he had all of them on VHS. This is pre-DVD. And uh, I bought all of them off him. They were fucking mad money as well. And the copies weren't great, but I had to see them. I'd read so much about these, these band movies. So I have to go see these movies. Now, I don't remember this Schooly D song, but this Schooly D song has a big section from Kashmir in it. So apparently when the movie comes out, there was fucking murder because Schooly D hadn't paid for any sort of rights of fucking usage for any of the parts he used. He just robbed it, released it. It was on a bleeding album, the whole shebang. But the world took notice when it was on this uh, Bad Lieutenant soundtrack. It was in the movie. So Page and Plant successfully went to court and had it removed from the movie. But a part of the thing was they were said that like, listen, whatever about whatever copies have been sold, fair enough. There's nothing we can do about that. You can't recall them. Um, but like anything like you have sitting in warehouses that have has that song on it, like you're gonna have yeah. to just destroy them. So the producers of the movie and the the studio that put it out had to recall like everything they had in storage all around the world for sale, brought it back and have it destroyed. Well, they printed up new copies of the movie that had the song removed. Um, so that's a big like whatever about the expense that they got then off fucking uh, the people who made Bad Lieutenant for not doing their fucking uh, their research to make sure that, like all the rights were secured for this song and then Schooly D getting fucking brought the cart for not <laughs> getting the rights and then having the fucking being like hundreds of thousands of VHS tapes and, pr- and print new ones 
like after editing them and then listen to listen to p p diddy singing over it then a few years later wait we're fucking uh i don't care playing guitar i think it's a godzilla soundtrack wasn't it I don't think it's Dave Grohl. I think it's Dave Grohl playing a turn, yeah. I like that. I don't care what anyone says. I think that song, Come With Me, is good. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Dave Grohl. He's not a good rapper. It would be great. better if he was garbage. a better rapper. Better, great Team producer. Team up all. Yeah, it's yeah. garbage. I wish I wish he would have let other people fucking write music for him as well. Like I watched a documentary about yeah. him and like the way he like ran that label was fucking insane. Like he used to get like 30 different producers together. Like lads just starting. Just like, do you know how to work with a drum machine and a laptop or whatever? Yeah, come with me. We're all going to Hawaii for like six months. And come I'm with lock- me. Exactly, come with me. And he'd lock them in this fucking like beach house and say, right, from nine o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the evening, you are doing nothing but making beats. And then we can go out on the session, have the crack, get the strippers, whatever. We're going to live like this for yeah. like half a year. But like, you have to be up at nine o'clock in the morning with a clean head and you have to just make music every day. And they fucking, he was like putting out six albums a week for years because he had so much talent producing like and he had just grab a singer like you fucking whatever eve whatever you fucking come here come with me fucking sit down there let me let me blow sit down let me blow your mind yeah exactly and he played <laughs> press play okay right okay no no well this might go on the biggie album but if your version is better and go on your album all right okay so whoever done the best on each track got it so i was fucking insane what a man uh or a pound of bollocks yeah. of a man as well. Anyway, that was uh, Cashmere, which, like I said, is one of the originals, even though it's fucking it's 1975. Loads of music that had fucking or- orchestras on it. But this is the yeah, one, like I said, that story, jumps out. Story about, uh, that Bad Lieutenant. That's interesting. Yeah, Bad Lieutenant's interesting. Yeah. Now, I don't even know whether you can hear. I'm sure someone has a copy of uh, Signifying Rapper. Um, it's probably on YouTube. Probably find it somewhere. I doubt yeah. that the right... Maybe they got the rights to it later. And uh, re-released it. Who fucking knows? But uh, I'm gonna go looking for that because I want to hear it. Uh, who was your next one? My next one is from a year after the Depeche Mode song. It's another comeback album. It's uh, "Frozen" by Madonna, which to me is it's great. Song. It's, it's the best Madonna song, apart from "Get Into the Groove" mm. uh, and possibly "Borderline." I don't know. I actually can't pick. I love yeah. Madonna's music. I don't don't even say that remotely sarcastically or yeah, cynically yeah, yeah. but genuinely do so in 1998 she was trying to work on her next album with Babyface and Patrick Leonard Patrick Leonard is a good at writes a lot of songs for her mm. uh, she just wasn't getting the sound she wanted so she wanted to go in a completely different direction that's something Donna does very well she always has done that so she went to English producer William Orbit I remember at the time like NME and all the Q magazines going holy shit we're, we're mad into William Orbit's solo stuff and now he's working with Madonna you know what I mean mm. he, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know whether it was Patrick Leonard or her who heard William Orbit to get this guy mm. so it was the longest album ever that uh, Madonna ever did like it took the longest time yeah. because William Orbit's gear kept breaking down his Oof. very specific hardware arrangement yeah. that he had to do things um, and they had to stop till it was repaired but when it came out it absolutely blew everyone away this is the fourth single off well, mm. yeah it is the fourth single off the album and I remember thinking to myself at the time in 1998 I just got Ultra and fucking we can't not mention Radiohead's okay computer yeah. <laughs> so I was like in no mood to be listening to the next Madonna thing because yeah. I hadn't really been blown away by the 90s stuff at all yeah yeah um, but when I heard this, I was like, holy fucking shit. And the Chris, the Chris Cunningham video, mm. the song had like Middle Eastern kind of maybe even Asian vibes. 
and uh, the video was like a, a desert and she turns into dogs and all that. I was like, holy fucking shit. This is mental, then the next, remember, yeah. yeah, and it was after Ray Light album. Then the Ray Light song came out and I was like, Ugh. Yeah. No, that's not good. Go back. And then, yeah, then she did Drowned World and Substitute for Love came out. I'm like, Grant, yeah. I'm getting this album sealed now. At least that's two good songs on it. So the album is a mixed bag. It's a, uh, but it's very clever move for Madonna at the time. His career is really, if you think about it, based around desperately staying musically relevant as possible. Very much, yeah. yeah. And uh, retaining the icon status as long yeah. as possible. Not passing the baton down because it doesn't really at work all. like that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work like that at all. So she wanted to keep it. Um, so many different stages. I always remember my uncle had her fucking, uh, her book where she was in the nip. Was it a sex book or whatever it was called? Erotica. Erotica, that's it, it. Yeah. yeah. That's like the photo book. Oh, the movie was, uh, the movie was <laughs> in bed with Madonna. Well, remember that? That's right, yeah. He remember having this fucking book because he loves uh, Madonna. And he had the book and uh, it was it was in my granny's house. And I fucking I found it one day and I was fucking rooting through it. I was like, oh, no, Madonna's in the nip. I think yeah. there's a couple of them where she had like hairy armpits. There's another one where she had like a flute beside her face. And I was like, what the fuck's going on here? Um, <laughs> so I always remember like that era, that fucking leather era of fucking Madonna. And yeah. then this one then later where it was all kind of ethereal kind of fucking Madonna, which I liked as well. And then she was a cowgirl, yeah, was. She was a cowgirl for a while. Oh, uh, yeah, it's, it's back down. It's <laughs> fucking American boy rubbish. Yeah. But uh, stick it on there anyway and give people yeah. a blast in case yeah. you it up with you. That's incredible. Right, here we go. She needs to die. Let all the hurt inside of you die. You're frozen when your heart's not open. Yeah. 
serious business. Oh yeah, I let it roll a little bit longer because it's so fucking good. I know. Yeah, I didn't want to like. Yeah. <laughs> one of the longer ones that I mm. got you to play. Uh, it is um. But, uh, so good that, that little fucking that. drum fill kind of broken snare thing that that it, it's it's like a sample and a tent that he uses to kind of yeah. kick back in. It's fucking so good. Yeah. Jesus Christ. I love it. He's a fucking phenomenal producer. Yeah. And that song just, so I didn't realize that in 2005, a judge in Belgium realized that uh, the song was actually ripping off a song by Salvatore Aquaviva. Mm. But the ruling was, uh, they went on for a good while, like a good while, years, yeah. nine years actually. Wow. Um, in 2014, it was overruled, lifting the eight-year ban of the song in Belgium. Back. So people could enjoy. Finally enjoy f- fucking Frozen by Madonna in Belgium. Frozen by Madonna, yeah. Like, to be fair, if I was after having a fucking hype of like St. Bernardus or Westle Veteran or one of them delicious uh, Belgian doubles or yeah. quads, um, at about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when I was starting to fucking chill out a little bit, I think that'd be a perfect... So maybe Bel- Belgium and this song maybe do go together and need it to be put back together again, Helmut. I'm glad, yeah. They do. Belgium do a lot of great things. They make great video games. They fucking... Great chips. They're all brilliant. Chips. Great chips. Savage Beer, chips. Footballers. Oh. Chocolate. Chocolate, yeah. It's a good place. Yeah. I spent a bit of time in Belgium. I've been there for a Grasspot Festival where I saw... That's right. Yeah, yeah. His, own, his own songs very badly. <laughs> so Marius, Marius DeVries was on keyboard and all the programming. Craig Armstrong yeah. on the string arrangement to bring out that um, epic fucking sound, which is Madonna's Frozen. Who's your last one? No. My last one, yeah, yeah. My last one is... Last one. I have to say this, right? This is... I'm going to get slagged for this, right? Probably. This is one of my favourite songs of all time. Right Now, this song is nearly 10 minutes long. And I'd love to play the first like five minutes of it, but I'm not. I'm going. <laughs> I, I'm. I'm just not. Honest to God, I, I. This is one of the rare things. It's not that rare. Actually, it does happen where an American act finds success in uh, Europe more so than America. So yeah, it does happen. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it definitely does happen, and it's always like a freakish thing, like Jimi Hendrix or if Bill Hicks. Like nobody in the states gave a fuck about Bill Hicks except for uh, Ireland and England. Um, he's not a singer, by the way. Yes, no, listen, forget it. Um, uh, I'm gonna just play a bit of it, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna play whatever minute and a half, two minutes of it. And everybody in the entire world knows the song, and it should be one of your favorites as well. <laughs>
you know I wanna be down, dancing through the night with you. Well, if I gotta be damned, you know I wanna be down. I have to pull it back now or else I'll just want to listen to the whole thing. I'll just press stop and fucking press play again because I, I really, yeah. like, the start of it is one of the greatest pieces of music ever made. It's two minutes yeah. of no, of just batshit mad stuff going on. No vocals uh, and fucking, it, there's, there's so many edits to this song because obviously the one they played on the radio wasn't 10 minutes long. So no. a lot of the, the radio edits that people grew up with is missing the, the two minute fucking intro, obviously, because nothing. Yeah. can't play a two-minute intro on the fucking radio. So I haven't yeah. heard the intro in years, actually. I so remember I was just saying before God. before I moved up, before um, we played it, I was just saying that like it was written by, I think it was written by Steinman, who did a, a lot Jim, of... Jim Steinman, yeah. yeah. Jim Steinman he, is... He wrote a lot of the Bear Sisters of Mercy songs, actually. Well, yeah. You know, arguably. Arguably, yeah. Uh, so, Meatloaf, Bad Hell, obviously, uh, a.k.a. Michael Lee Aday, who was born Marvin Lee Aday. He just keeps changing his name, this cunt. Uh... Meatloaf, just go with Meatloaf. Meatloaf, yeah. Um, he, like, he, just, he just changed his birth cert. Probably did. Exactly. Uh, so this Band of Hell, the album, is one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Uh, it sold so many albums that it stayed in the charts for nine years. Uh, it sold 50 million albums worldwide. And to this day, still t- still sells tens of thousands of copies every year. It's just one of those fucking albums. Like, if you don't... Like everybody who is, like, a big record collector has fucking multiple versions I have I have to steal it I might have said this before when I want to say I have my Elfala has one of the original cardboard cutouts that's the guy on the fucking motorbike with the bat behind him that was from like uh, HMV or Golden Discs it was like yeah. the, the day the album came out it was like they had one of the big cardboard stands with the LPs and fucking tapes and all that shit in it and my Elfala still has this giant fucking like meatloaf I'm going to steal that and I'm going to bring it down to the studio for Lost, Lost Art TV because I think at some stage we're oh, going right. to have to have a little set, I think. Um, not a green screen, an actual set, I think, um, for some of our stuff. And I think we have to get some music memorabilia in there. I think it'd be cool looking. And that'd be a perfect start for it. Um, so, okay, this is not that long. It's just kind of dense because there's loads of little bits and pieces. So, the name Meatloaf comes from the first band he was in. The first band he was in was called Meatloaf Soul. That was the name of the band he was in. Meatloaf Soul. He used to tour and do gigs with uh, Van Morrison and stuff like that around the States. Oh, right. um, he's the son of a school teacher and a retired police officer. And uh, the reason his dad fucking, the reason his dad uh, retired from the, the police force is that he invented uh, weird cough medicine. So he retired from the police force to sell his own homemade cough medicine. It uh, didn't work out too well. The Elfle ended up becoming an alcoholic. And that's one of the reasons that Meatloaf kind of ran away from home and ended up uh, in Los Angeles. So uh, he has his band Meatloaf Soul, uh, touring around doing little bits, bits and pieces. He ends up uh, joining the Los Angeles production of the musical Hair. And he does particularly fucking good. People are like, this dude is fucking great. Like, he looks the part. Yeah. Big, big fucking hench dude. He's... um. He's fucking, he's got some set of pipes he can sing. So Motown approached him. They're like, listen, would you like to do a fucking album with Motown? He's like, hey, fucking right, I'd love to do an album with Motown. So off he goes, he does it. But he ends up leaving Motown because after he releases the album, one day he's, uh, while he's still signed to Motown, he turns on the radio and he hears one of his songs, but Edwin Starr is singing over it. Oh, like Edwin Starr from War. So yeah. he's like, what the fuck is that? That's off my album that I just released. And, Gets onto Motown. He's like, "What just happened?" They're like, "We think Edwin suited that song better." 
He's like, yeah, but I literally just released that with oh, Jules. It's already you. Yeah. <laughs> like, that song exists already. They're like, ah, don't worry about it. <laughs> so he's like, fuck you, Mouthhound. He leg- legs it. Um, he goes off. He starts doing a few more musicals, touring around doing musical productions, blah, blah, blah. He ends up joining the original stage production of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And he does real well in this. People are like, this dude is fucking great. I think he plays Eddie, you know? Yeah. And he's like, this is fucking, this is doing particularly well. And then, obviously, the movie starts getting made. So he gets hired to be in the movie as well. They try and keep as many of the original cast members to, uh, to make the movie as possible. So he does that. Now, while he's fucking, while uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show was out, he's doing, uh, he's doing, trying to do a few more gigs, trying to get his music career back up and running. So he, he inks a deal with Epic Records who are a big fucking record label. And they're like, what, what would you like to do? He's like, listen, no, I was doing soul music for ages. And now I'm about to be doing all this like musical theater stuff. I'd love to be able yeah. to mix the two things together. And I have this mate of mine called Jim Steinman. And he's like savage at writing songs. So I'm thinking like, we'll just be meatloaf like, and we'll get people in and we'll fucking, we'll just wing it like, we'll, we'll figure it out in the studio. Jim has like fucking hundreds of songs just sitting around doing nothing. But like what we want to do yeah. is we want to make, uh, because Rocky Horror Picture Show done so good, he was like, I want to make four music videos for this album. And they're all like, they're not going to be far off movie length when you put them together. Like that was the big yeah. deal. And uh, they were like, fucking, all right, yeah, well, like Rocky Horror Picture Show was you, which we've been touring the country for ages. We know who you are. Um, now, while he's making Battle of the Hell, he gets, uh, he, Ted Nugent gives him a call and says, listen, would you like to sing on my album? He's like, yeah, I need a bit of experience, like fucking doing kind of rock and roll. I like rock and roll, but I haven't really recorded any. So off he goes yeah. to Ted Nugent, records an album called uh, Free For All with Ted Nugent. He sings on like half or 60% of the songs. And um, so 1977, fucking Meatloaf and Steinberg, uh, Steinberg get together. And they're saying, right, we're fucking banging out, out this, uh, banging out this album. Nobody had heard anything like it before. Barrel of Hell fucking hits. All of a sudden, like, America's like, eh, maybe. Europe is like, fucking yes, please. Give me all of that. I will have all the meatloaf you have, plus more, please. Now, where it gets kind of fucky is that when the album is released, Steinman and Meat- Meatloaf have a big fucking row, right? They have a big L fucking row. And the reason they have sure. a row is because Jim Steinman has written this song called Total Eclipse of the Heart. Oh, yeah, and it's supposed to be on the second Meatloaf album, but he gives right. it to Bonnie Tyler instead. So Meatloaf's yeah. like, fucking, like, well, who are you giving this fucking, who's Bonnie Tyler? All of a sudden this song comes out and it's like fucking huge. So Meatloaf's like, that could have been mine. That absolutely could have been mine. Yeah. So, I'm glad it wasn't. <laughs> I like Meatloaf and all, but I'm glad it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like I said, this is around 1977. This is all within the first kind of fucking year. They have killings over Total Eclipse of the Heart. They eventually make up, like, oh, listen, let's make uh, Bad Hell 2. And that's where you end up with, uh, I would do anything for love. Now, here's an interesting one. The woman who sings on I would do anything for love is credited as Mrs. Lowood, right? Nobody knew anything about her except for the fact that she was Mrs. Lowood. Now, Mrs. Lowood's real name is Lorraine Crosby. And she's a British singer who sings in like Butlins and holiday camps all over England. Right. They just got her in one day. There's like, it doesn't matter. Just, it's meatloaf. It doesn't matter. Just get me someone who could sing. Go out and find me someone who could sing. And some fucking runner from the studio just came back. This is Lorraine Crosby. 
Can you sing? I can sing. We get in there, sing this, and all of a sudden the song is fucking huge. Now, what he does, they get kind of scummy about it, and they don't tell anybody what our name is, so they don't have the credit or property for our fucking rights and all this type of right. shit. And when they're touring it, they get someone else in to tour it when they're singing it. So they don't even bring this woman uh, on fucking tour, right? They get someone else shit. in. So Lorraine Crosby ends up like singing and she, she does like an X Factor in 2005 where like Simon Cowell's like, oh, you, you've no talent whatsoever. You can fuck off. And she's like, but I sang like a number one hit like all over the world. What the fuck are you talking about? Mm. Now, she's a... It is sad. She ended up doing the voice and all. She kept getting passed over, you know what I mean? I always felt bad for her. Um, for Mrs. Loud, for Lorraine Crosby. But like, me love, to be fair, after the first one, the second one sold real well. Battle Hill 2 sold real well. But after that, it, it was did. Just, it was huge in the 90s, remember? Yeah. I remember. But it was just a fucking belly flopped after it. Now, the bands that play it on Battle Hill, the song, is particularly fucking, it's great as well. So you have uh, Max Weinberg from the E Street Band. It's, it's actually, to be honest with you, a lot of the E Street Band played on, um, on Battle Hill. And a guy called... Um, we call Rory Dodd, who downloaded the the kind of backup vocals. He actually ended up, he was the GF voice on Total Eclipse of the Heart. He was the turnaround. That was he ended up working with Stoyman later on as well, um, kind of in between Battle of Hell one and two. So uh, Stoyman t- seems to be, he's he's most certainly the main songwriter in it. But there was stuff before Battle of Hell 2 that was released by me that done particularly good as well. It was like it was at Midnight at the Laundromat or something it was called. That done pretty well as well. That was written by Meatloaf. Right. Like Meatloaf wasn't devoid of musical talent. He just, he wasn't Jim Steinman. No, it's just like, it's Jim just Steinman. Exactly. Um, so he, like there was a bunch of stuff released. Now, I know they had trouble trying to get Battle of Hell 2 released. Like there's a big, big gap there. They had trouble trying to get that release because people thought it's just a fucking fad, battle of hell, and everything after it was, you know, midnight at the laundromat or whatever. I didn't yeah. do particularly well. Uh, in between that, he was playing, remember we mentioned it before, he was playing Moat in Westmead and people were throwing chips at him and all. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. He said, People keep throwing <laughs> chips at me, I'm fucking out of here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, poor Down Meatloaf had a, um, he actually has, he influenced me to, uh, a good idea for a podcast that I'm going to tell you about when we're finished recording that I think it's going to be a cool. fucking real fun one. Um, but I love Battle of Hell. This is one of the, one of my earliest memories of like a big fuck off song. Like that's the way, like it's epic, but it's also a big fuck off song. It's 10 minutes long. It never really gets yeah. boring. And when it does start getting a little bit more relaxed and it's just the piano and him singing, all of a sudden, dun, 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 like fuck, I'm back into it here now. Like apparently yeah. the whole album is based around uh, Peter Pan. So Battle really? of Hell, yeah, the yeah, whole album is based around this kind of alternative version of the telling of like Tinkerbell and fucking Peter Pan and uh, whoever the fucking <laughs> kid, kid is. Um, yeah, it's, it's mad weird. Yeah, Battle of Hell. So Battle of Hell is supposed to be fucking whatever, uh, someone escaping from Captain Hook's clutches or some shit like that, like that's so mm. fast. Um, there was more there recording it as well. There was, it's a band called Utopia. There was a couple of guys in the band Utopia. Um, that were involved in, in, in the production of the album as well and there was killings over like apparently Steinman kept adding stuff onto songs and they were like mate it's fucking seven minutes long like leave it and he goes no I have this fucking killer idea man that we're going to do this bit that's like has, you can hear the motorbike and all and you're going to hear the motorbike crashing and all and they're like would you ever fuck off man it's like this fucking <laughs> album is so long and Steinman's like listen just trust me on this so apparently they came to like a compromise at the end of Battle of the Hell you've got the the big crash that was like they gave him his fucking motorbike his little repoise and his motorbike <laughs> crash shit like that just to shut him the fuck up so it's like it's 10 seconds off in 10 minutes long 
you know what I mean? And it's one of the fucking yeah. big, it's like the title song of one of the, the biggest selling albums of all time that still sells a shit ton, a shit ton of copies every year. Like, and this cunt wouldn't let it be. And apparently he was famous for it. Like every fucking song, he'd like, they'd be, the band would be rehearsed, ready to fucking do that. Yeah, he has to make every, every song an epic. Yeah. And he'd just come back in. He's like, no, listen, I was thinking about it last night and I have this three minute part, right, that we're going to glue in here. And so apparently producers fucking didn't really like working with him. Um, because he's just, so. he was just, he was difficult because when you show up in the studio, because some bands write in the studio, they just show up and they rent a studio for six months and they go in every day and fuck around. Metallica do that. Apparently the Metallica don't have pre-written songs. We've seen that in that documentary, but apparently that's standard for them oh, where they have very little Jesus. written. They might have a few little bits and pieces, but they go in and they sit down and they write in the studio and put the song together that way. Um, and then you've obviously got mo- the majority, I, I, would, I would assume, of bands that have uh, most of it worked out, if not the whole thing, and show up. And that, uh, they're the ones that the records companies like because there's less time in the studio, less production, less fucking rent and whatever. In, out, shake it all about, get the fuck out, right? Done. Yeah, it's mad, so, it's mad money. It's mad money, exactly. So with Steinman, they had they thought they had it all because Steinman had all these fucking tracks written, but every day he'd come in with new parts. So they just kept the budget kept getting expanded and expanded and expanded. But then the record label hear something, they go like, Oh fuck, I have to let him do it. It's so good, we have to let him do it, we have to let him do it. So they got paid back in anyway, fucking a thousand million times over in the end. But that was my last yeah. one. That was Bat Out of Hell. Uh Bat Out of Hell. Bat Out of Hell. Who is your last one? My last one's sort of someone who started all this, I think, anyway. The epic sound. He's a uh, considered the composer of the heroic type of classic music uh, and the big epic stuff. Wagner as well is is there, but like mm. Wagner was only born when Beethoven was releasing this song. It's a uh, symphony number no. seven, second act allegro. Uh, stick it on there. You'll you'll know it when you hear it. Everyone will know it when they hear it. All right. Not even his most epic book, is it? Thank you. 
always reminds me of green sleeves for some reason. Is that the like green sleeves? Has that fucking. There's something in it that's yeah. a little two no chains. There's nothing to do with it, but it's always. Whenever I hear that, I go like green sleeves. People will recognize that from like so many films, mm. including, the, including the one that I chose this, this uh, recording of from. Uh, the King's Speech. This is the one done by uh, Terry Davies and the London Symphony Orchestra. Because the other, it was just a, like you said when you're doing the podcast. You pick ones that have the cleanest sort of yeah. Excuse me, sound. And this I is my the, problem yeah. with classical music. I fucking love classical music, and I don't know an awful lot about it. I know a little bit about it, but I don't own any because I don't know which ones are good. I don't know which fucking orchestras do the best versions yeah. of it. And YouTube I, is a good way to do it. I, I listen to stuff on YouTube. I do it on, yeah. on Spotify an awful lot as well, where people create like playlists of like the best versions of yeah, what they think. They're just, yeah, maybe, yeah. It's so different like, it's some of them. In D minor, in C sharp, and I'm like, what the fuck? Of course, they're all in different things. Yeah. And as well as that, they, some of them just don't sound particularly, they, they're played incredibly, but they're Naxos and they could be from the 80s and it, yeah. 70s or 60s or whatever, and it just doesn't sound recorded very well because it's exactly. hard to record a fucking orchestra in full belt. Um, fucking ring. So this was a this was 1883 uh, sorry 1813 mm. I was saying 1883 1813 and after this he became almost completely deaf like this is when it was getting really really bad do it to you I like... thought I thought it was tinnitus that did it and, and it was for the for a good part mm. um a severe, he had a severe tonight, but it actually was kicked off by a fight he had with a singer. Oh. He just jumped down, had a, had a, had a fit. And, uh, For real? Been 15 years before this song came out, he had a fit. Yeah. So 15 years after that, it took 15 years, and by then his hearing was pretty much just... Also, he died in 1887, that's what it was. That, that doesn't even sound right either. I, I know there was, there was a conspiracy theory, not even like a conspiracy theory, but there was, I read a thing before saying that um, Beethoven was black. Um, I remember hearing something like that. Yeah, actually, as well. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Went about. Like I said, I don't know. Went about classical music. Um, yeah. And when you read something like that, eighteen twenty-seven. I don't know. Yeah. Where I got my fucking. And um, when you read something like that, you go. I don't know. Like maybe. I don't. I don't fucking know. Um. Yeah, I read something that like. Uh, they they had a white bloke who'd show up and do the fucking. They were standing in front of the orchestra and all this type of stuff, but the Beethoven who wrote the music was a black man. I don't know. I doubt it. Everyone would be signed up by now. I just think, yeah, quite possibly. No. I have no idea. Yeah. It's just one of those things yeah, that I read. Lead poisoning because he drank a load of wine, which at the time, wine had a fuckload of lead in it, and he drank it from a lead goblet. <laughs> and but the thing is, a lot of people said that wouldn't kill you, but people... Only a while ago, cops that they reckoned that his body couldn't break down lead and eliminate mm. it from the body. So he mm. died with a massive, massive buildup of fucking lead. Which is Imagine, nice. that's a poxy way to go. So, yeah, his musical style is kind of classed as the heroic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Entrancey kind of music that we were talking yeah. about earlier. That's what an epic is. Yeah. Um, this was like a really, really tough period from like an 1813. Actually, before that, it was, it was a really tough time. He came back with this. Um, he, he looked shabby. People were like, "Thought he was um, woke up with Ludwig." Thought he was absolutely, thought he was absolutely losing it. Like, yeah, um, but he started writing music like this again that year when news came to him that uh, Napoleon 
was defeated at like the battle. Ding, 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 ding. So mm. clearly delighted with that. Um, when he first played this to an audience, they demanded an encore for this section. Really? Sort of went, Do we want an encore now, please? Mower. Or whatever they say in, uh, in Austrian or whatever fucking place they have in Austria. Well, he couldn't hear them, could he? Yeah. He could a little bit by then. Yeah. It was after this where it started to go really into the shits. But yeah. Um, he, kept, he kept composing he, after he, was, he went deaf as well, didn't he? He did, yeah. He said he could hear, like, feel the the, the strength of the notes yeah. or whatever, like that, or feel the thumps or know the difference between the thumps and, and heard them in that way. Probably still hear maybe some pitches in there yeah, as well. Which is mad. Yeah, from the fully, fully deaf. Like, that's fucking insane. But he's, he's known as the fucking a bit of a mad cunt, like, by Yeah. But he has to be mad. You'd have to be mad to be making music like that, like to be fair to it. Yeah. And like at the at the yeah. at the high level that these lads are putting music out as well, where once they were famous, it was like everything had to be fucking bananas going after, like because royalty was coming to see them. Like Oh, they were all like 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 back they were talking eighteen to fourteen, people going, mm. What's his next album gonna be like? Exactly. Yeah. Not an album, but that's yeah. the way it was. Like, it's next, I mean? next piece, yeah. Fucking yeah. time. So I had to, like you said, it did have to be better, and I had to wow the audience. I always yep. had, to, had to fit with the time as well. Yeah, and it had to fit with the exact place he was. So that mm. was Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Seven, and that brings to a close our beautiful epic. Dead That's actually end. a great playlist. It is a great really motivation. It is. Yeah, G- gym playlist. Um, so I couldn't finish. I couldn't finish out. Yeah, I couldn't like leave out Beethoven. I wanted to have some classical music in there. There's a yes. bit of origins to where the bit, of, bit of culture for you is he's fucking heathen bastards. Yeah. yeah. He's absolute Philistine it's bastards. If, me and him don't listen to classical music all the time. We'd like to pretend we do. We don't though. Not all the time, no. no. I listen to more of the fucking the strokes than I do Beethoven. I don't even Yeah, know yeah, stuff. absolutely. Like I said, I don't know. I love to. I don't know. If anybody listens to classical music and likes classical music and knows something about classical music, please recommend like not not Spotify playlists, but like well, albums. I can recommend you Oh, albums, yeah. yeah. That I can buy. Yeah, yeah there's no, <laughs> like this Stravinsky, Vivaldi and all them, but yeah, like they're the, yeah. they're the rites of spring and all this. Like, yeah, intense. but I, mean, I need to know on, what orchestra you know. and what key and what recording, and it's, it's loads of layers. Just, just find yourself, man. Yeah, but it's the best to, part about yeah, it. Yeah, I think I have to go real. Because you, you will have arguments, though. It's crazy the way it works. It's like... I'll never fight with somebody over classical music. It'll never happen. I, no, but if you talk about, like, which album is better, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon or Animals, which is obviously... But you, you have different arguments. Yeah. In the classical, it's like, no, I actually think the one that was recorded by uh, Jose fucking whatever in... in Wankowski, yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, that's just the way it works. Yeah. Well, look, that's uh, that's us, uh, that's it for another week. We're back, uh, this Saturday with Last Art TV. Uh, we've got a fresh podcast for you next Monday as well. If you want to support us, you've got the patreon.com forward slash Last Art Podcast. All of our links are on lastartpodcast.com. We've got a kofi ko hyphen foe.com links fuck floating around on the Facebook or something like that. Um, as well, if you don't want to subscribe which is fine because it's five dollars or five euros a month on patreon if you don't want to give us five a month that's fine uh you can just tip us uh buy us a coffee or a cup of tea or whatever uh if you like the podcast if you don't want to spend any money share it on facebook facebook's our number one thing uh we're on all the other ones as well we won't say no to anyone else share or a like or whatever the fuck but facebook's our main one uh yeah. where we we gather the masses the generals gathered in their masses um so uh yeah we're back uh saturday with a live show Make sure to tune in to that. Create yourself a lovely little Mixcloud account to the uh, event. 
page is up on Facebook. If you want to click attending, and uh, we'll have some cool shit for you then, and a lovely podcast then the week after. Uh, see you then. Thank you very much. See ya.